0: All right. Open your Bibles to Judges, chapter eight. Outlines are on the table in front of you. Um, the, the The last thing that we did was look at um, Gideon's dealing with the resentment of the tribe of Ephraim, how he appeased them by his words. And so we're at verse 4 of chapter 8, <clears throat> Gideon and his 300 are in hot pursuit of the Midianite, what's left of the Midianite army, and today they're going to catch them as we, uh, as we move forward. They're going to catch them, and we'll see what happens. All right, so let's pray, and then we will begin reading at verse 4 of Judges chapter 8. Father, thank you for the privilege that you have afforded us to be here today, to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to enjoy a delicious meal, um, to study your word. All of these things are special to us, and we're grateful. Thank you for uh, the health that you've given us that allowed us to get up this morning and go about our day. And so we ask that you will bless us as we study your word, encourage our hearts Thank you for everyone who's here. I pray your richest blessings upon each one. And we say to you this afternoon that we adore you and we love you. And our desire is to serve you, honor you, and please you. And I pray that even our very study here this afternoon will bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to read beginning with verse 4. You can tell I've got allergies. And the bane of my existence in the fall... Uh, Always happens somewhere in the fall. All right, here we go. Verse 4. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkot, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkot said, "Now notice the sarcasm here, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. I think Gideon's mad. Verse eight, from there he went up to Penal and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Sukkot had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. And just let me give you a little look ahead. He'll do more than tear down the tower. So we'll see what, what that means in a few minutes. So I, I've entitled this a swaggering resistance on the part of Sukkot and Peniel. Uh, Gideon is still chasing the two kings, Zeba and Zim, Zim, Zalmunna. And their troops, they crossed the Jordan River, so they're now on the east side of the Jordan River in what we would call today the nation of Jordan. They're on the east side, and um, Gideon is in hot pursuit of the kings, and the Israelis have come to Sukkot. They ask for bread. They're tired. They're hungry. They need some sustenance, and um, Sukkot says no. Uh, They resist with a bit of a swagger, I I think, uh, you don't you have not yet cut off the hands of the two kings so why should we give you any food the implication is this what if you don't catch them and cut off their hands and they hear that we fed you then we're scared that they're going to come back and take it out on us that's the implication so we're not going to give you any bread because you don't have their in that Delicious to think about, cutting off their hands and bringing them back to town. So they have assessed the situation and decided that they're more afraid of these two Midianite kings than they are of Gideon. So Gideon, in verse 7, in his anger says, When we're done with the Midianites, we're coming after you, Sukkot, and we're going to punish you. They go to Penuel. same request, same refusal. And same answer from Gideon, just wait until we get those kings and take care of the Midianite army. We're coming back for you. Uh, verse 9 gives us Gideon's promise, same promise he made to Sukkot. And as we think about this, I think we're going to see uh, Gideon's not perfect. I'm sure that's an astonishing surprise to you. But Gideon's not perfect. And we're going to see him in his fleshliness several times over the next couple of chapters, uh, and and I don't know how that makes you feel, but some, yeah, that kind of makes that reassures me. Okay, um, Gideon was not perfect, but he's listed in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter eleven. I'm sure way far from perfect, so I'm in good company. And that kind of gives you a little maybe a little reassurance, but. Uh, there's a little, maybe a little bit of a problem with Gideon's response here of vengeance I'm going to come back and take it out on you I think it's a response that perhaps he makes in the flesh it's understandable from a human perspective it's understandable we're hungry you've got the food you're not feeding us and we don't like that could Gideon have taken another approach we don't necessarily know everything that he said I mean we get enough to know the gist of it but maybe a better approach would have been to say look <clears throat> Don't place your trust in me or my 300 men going after the 15,000 troops left alive in, in, in Midian. But le- look, look, here's what God's done. Let me tell you what God's done with the 300. And, and so, what we're asking you to do is not to trust me, a man named Gideon, not even to trust the 300 troops that are here. We're, we're asking you to trust God. Look at what God's done. And he has promised us that the Midianites are going to fall at our hands. So trust God and give us some food. Now, maybe that would have been the better thing to say. Uh, But as best we can tell, Gideon didn't say that. Uh, He just simply says, "Uh, don't go anywhere. I'll be back. Um, I know it's hard to believe, but don't trust in me. I know you can count. There are only 300 of us. But look at what God's already done. So trust him. So maybe his anger is a little out of place. But he does say, I will return, and we will find Midian to be a man of his word. He will return. Now, I'm not trying to pick apart one of the heroes of Scripture, especially one listed in the Faith Hall of Fame. That's not my purpose. But but the Bible does reveal flaws in some of the very greatest, and it enables us, perhaps, to identify with with them. Um, Did Peter have any flaws? Yep. Um, How about Andrew, James, and John? Yep. Um, What about David? Oh, my. Okay. You get the picture. So Gideon's got his flaws, but nevertheless... He's a man who lives by faith, and God honors him and honors his name. So now we come to verse 10. We're going to read 10 through 12, and we're going to find the final Midianite destruction. Verse 10 of chapter 8. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men. Now, do the math. 15,000 being pursued by 300 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Isn't that astonishing? That's, a, that's miraculous. God did it. Gideon went up by the route of the, of the nomads east of Nobah and Jogbeha, Jogbeha and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire So we'll stop there for a minute. Um, I can only conclude that the Midianites had run far enough east of the Jordan that they felt safe from Gideon. Because the scripture tells us that Gideon's army surprised them. You would think they would have been looking for that and had a watch set out, but apparently they didn't. They're well east of the Jordan River now in what we call Jordan, the nation of Jordan, um, and perhaps they talked among themselves and said, well, they won't chase us this far. They'll just turn around and go back home. Well, they didn't know the tenacity of Gideon. And if Gideon is anything, he is tenacious. And so the two kings were caught. Uh, the, the army was off guard. And so they destroyed the army uh, of Midian. Uh, it's hard to fee- believe their feelings of security, but here is Gideon, and though still outnumbered, they won the victory. So, therefore, we know that God has done it again. Just as Gideon said, to, could have said to Sukkot and to Penuel, "Here's what God's done; He's going to do it again." He didn't say that, but those two cities didn't trust God; they thought. This is not going to go well for Gideon and his army. And yet Gideon captures the two kings and routed their demoralized army in one of the most astonishing military victories in all of history. 300 against 15,000. That is amazing. And they didn't have bazookas. They didn't have tanks. They didn't have bombs and planes but they had God, and that's all they needed, and they won the victory. Now, let's go to verse 13, and let's find vengeance. Verse 13 of chapter 8, uh, Gideon, son of Joash, by the way, when you watch a movie, come on, be honest now, In vengeance for the good guys, isn't that delicious? Don't you just love it? I love to see the good guys, you know, say, I'm coming back for you. And they come back and they get them. And I love that part. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I think I eat it up. So I like that. So here we go. Uh You know, God, I've got flaws. So here we go. Verse 13, Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle of the pass of Harris. He caught a young man of Sukkot and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the seventy-seven officials of Sukkot, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkot, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkot a lesson, by punishing them with desert thorns and briars, whipped them. He also pulled down the tower of Penal and killed the men of the town. I would say in the long run, Sukkot got off a little better than Penal did. Well, let's pause there. So he gets the leaders' names, 77 elders, and they round them up when they get to Sukkot and... uh, here are Zeba and Zalmuna, just like I said, would happen. Now I'm back for revenge. I told you I'd be back, and here I am. And so at Sukkot, the punishment was torture. I mean, there's no way to call it anything but that. He just, they flailed him with those briars. I'm sure that, ooh, that hurt. Then he goes to Peniel and destroys their tower and, and kills them, kills them all. The word will spread. You better believe the word's going to go out. Don't mess with Gideon. And Gideon's God is to be feared. So we see a little sweet vengeance there. I don't know about the word sweet, but we do see vengeance. So let's go to verse 18, and we see slaughter. Then he asked Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Notice their answer. Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince Gideon replied those were my brothers the sons of my own mother uh, Zeba and Zalmunna knew that they looked at Gideon and they remembered some of the men that they had slaughtered and they they remember oh yeah you you look like the ones we killed no deception on the part of the two kings they just tell it like it is I mean they know what's about to happen in the the culture of that day, these two guys don't have a chance. It would have been an extraordinary act of mercy if Gideon had decided not to kill them. And so Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. Now, in the Middle Eastern society of that day, we, that would not be looked at as punishment for his son. That would have been looked at as honor. Honoring your son by letting him kill the two kings. However, Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeban Zalmunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. Now, they're not taunting Gideon. I'll, I'll tell you what they're doing in a minute. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them, and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. Uh, it's not not real comfortable reading, is it? Here's a blood blood revenge for the death of his of his own brothers at the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna. This is personal. This is personal. What was the famous movie, uh, the book, Godfather? It's just business. It's not personal. Before you, <laughs> this is business. Well, this is personal. This is personal. As the two kings looked at Gideon, they recalled his brothers because they looked alike. He can look at them and tell. So, what Gideon asks of his son is not unusual for the day. It would have been considered an honor. But the boy is young and he's afraid. And the two kings ask Gideon to do it. Now, here is at least part of the reason why they ask Gideon to do it. They know they're know they going to die. There's no, it's going to happen. So they face it, I suppose, as bravely as two pagan kings could face it. But they know if Gideon does it, it'll be swift and sure it'll be over. If the boy does it, he may mess it up. And that, that could be, that could be awful for these two kings. So they would just rather get it over with. And so they say to Gideon, you do it, which he did. And Gideon took the king's ornaments off their camels, many of which we now know from archaeology were crescent shaped, crescent moon shaped ornaments have been found all over the Middle East, all over Israel in archaeological digs. And that symbol is still used to this day, is it not? Who uses that symbol? Arabs? Muslims? Yep. Okay. Now we come to verse 22, and the question is asked of Gideon, Will you be king? Makes sense to me. Why not? Look at what he's done. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The people want a king. They look around, and most of the other nations around them have a king. We want a king. Would you be our king? Does that sound familiar? Will we see this again in Scripture? Absolutely. It's how Saul became king of Israel. Uh, uh, others around us have a king. We want a king. Now, This shows their respect for Gideon, but perhaps it shows a continuing lack of trust in God on the part of the people. So Gideon says, you already have a king, and your king is God himself. Israel is supposed to be a theocracy, not a monarchy. And so here we see a more humble Gideon who says, our king is God. You don't need a human king. And he he demurs and says, no, I will not be your king. Now we come to verse 24 and we go from riches to heresy. How in the world does that happen? Well, let's see verse 24. And he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder into it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So let's stop there for a minute. Wow, that's a lot in f- <laughs> that's a whole lot of stuff in just a few verses isn't it so gideon is is ready I, I don't know how old he was but he's ready to retire um and that's understandable i mean can you uh, what else could you do and uh, he's probably worn out i mean this is god won the victory but gideon still had to go do a lot of work he's tired And so he says, I'm ready to step down. I'm ready to retire, but I don't want to have to scratch out a living like I was doing in the past. Remember the wine presses when he was threshing the grain? So he says, "Um, I want all of you to bring me a little bling. And they did, without hesitation. And he took the gold from what was in that stash, and, and the rest of it would have been made him a wealthy man and he took the gold that was in all of that jewelry and he made it into an an ephod now does that word ephod that ring a bell who wore an ephod high priest yeah the the priest a multi uh, beautiful now that hadn't happened yet but the the priest wears an ephod so uh, he makes it into an ephod the scripture says And I wonder why. I can't answer that question. Now he got the rest of all this stuff, so he's gonna, he's gonna live a comfortable lifestyle the rest of his life. And I don't begrudge that. Anybody begrudge that? I mean, if I'd done what Gideon would have done, I'd ask for some jewelry too. So I I don't begrudge that. But he makes this ephod. And, and what, what was he thinking? Commentate. I looked at several commentaries. Uh, in this, in this text, and the, the weight of the jewelry varied from any, from as little as 40 pounds to 75 pounds. But I want to tell you, I'd have been okay with the 40. <laughs> that, that's a lot of jewelry. You will not lack for anything for the rest of your life. And so they actually gave more than Gideon had even requested of them. Now, this ephod, they, I saw three options on this. Here they are. The first, A garment to be worn. Secondly, a replica of the high priestly garment. Or third, a freestanding image of some kind. We don't really know for certain which it was. But for Israel, after he put it on display, it became an object of reverence and worship. That didn't happen overnight. They didn't go in there the next day and start bowing down to that ephod. But it did eventually happen. And it became a snare to Israel and to Gideon. It wasn't his intent, but that's what happened. Uh, Do you see the cyclical pattern getting ready to happen again in Israel? Well, let's look at verse 28 and look at Gideon's last days. We're doing good on time. We're going to make it. We may actually finish this chapter. Verse 28. Thus, Midian was subdued. Before the Israelites, and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace forty years. Not wonderful. Jeroboam, son of Joash, another that's that's Gideon, went back home to live. He had seventy sons of his own, for he had many wives. Uh oh. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, wait 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 a minute. <laughs> you got all these wives and you need a concubine too? His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Remember that name. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, in Ophrah of the Abizurites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal berith as their God and did not remember the Lord, their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Okay, let's look there a minute. Verse 28 is, is, a, is a look back. The victory is won. The Midianites are defeated. And 40 years of peace. What a. Precious, prosperous time for Israel. Gideon lived out his days in prosperity. If you got a finger to turn back, look back at chapter 6, verse 15. When Gideon was protesting God's call, he didn't want to do it. Gideon said, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Part of what he was saying there was... We don't have anything. We're dirt farmers. We don't have anything. Why would you want me? Well, the rest is is history. But contrast that to the way Gideon lived his last days in great prosperity. Now, the fact that he had many wives is not uncommon, of course, in that day. But in Scripture, it is uniformly disastrous. Uniformly disastrous. I, I don't know when you can think of A man who had multiple wives, and it wasn't a disastrous thing. Um, Abimelech is the son of this um, woman from Shechem. And so he, Abimelech, is the son of Gideon and the concubine. Now, here's something you may not know. The tradition of the day was this. The sons of wives... women that Gideon had actually married belonged to the man's family they are Gideon's family the sons of concubines are considered to be part of the concubines family not part of Gideon's family so he would have been raised apart from Gideon Gideon may have gone to visit him from time to time when he was going to visit her but This child Abimelech was not really legally considered to be part of Gideon's family. Now, the word Abimelech means my father a king. It's an interesting name chosen by Gideon, isn't it? My father a king. No, I don't want to I don't want to be king. A little confusing. My father a king. I wonder, did Gideon wish that he had become king? I, I don't have any way of knowing the answer to that question. I just find that to be an interesting name. When he said, I won't be your king, God's your king. But then he names his boy by the concubine, my father, a king. Well, we'll see more about Abimelech in chapter 9, believe me. So we'll get there next week. So the scripture tells us that uh, Gideon is uh, is going to die and... Um, Yeah, Gideon dies and was given an appropriate burial. And guess what? Israel goes back to idolatry and the sensual worship of the fertility goddesses of the day. They forgot God, they forgot Gideon, and here's the cycle all over again. Does that astonish you? Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. So go back to the ephod a minute. Gideon put that on display in his hometown. And it really was intended, I mean, when you put something on display, you intend people to come and look at it. You don't put it on display hoping nobody will ever come. So when Gideon put the ephod on display, he wanted and hoped that people would come to see it. What was that purpose about? To remember him, maybe? Or did he, in his heart, want them to come and ask him, What do you think? Will you be a judge? Will you be. I know you don't want to be a king, so we won't ask you to do that, but would you. I don't know. I'm just guessing that. I don't know anything about that, but it just makes me wonder when I read that. What was his purpose? But what happened that I don't ever think Gideon intended, absolutely don't think Gideon intended this, they began to come and began to worship it. And it became a snare for the kingdom and for the country, and it became a snare for Gideon. I wonder in what way. Well, as Gideon views his people going off in the wrong direction, does he carry that on his heart? Is that a burden for him? Perhaps so. And then as soon as he's gone, they're back at it again, worshiping idols. So in this chapter, the greatness of Gideon and the humanness of Gideon, the blessing upon Israel and the curse that Israel invites upon herself, isn't it fascinating to make this journey through Judges? So next week, we'll pick up with chapter 9 and Abimelech, and it will be an interesting chapter so don't miss it. Then we'll uh, go on to chapter 10 and some more judges. Um, looming on the horizon in chapter 13, Samson. That's always exciting and fun to study about Samson. So we're headed in that direction and we'll get there in about eight months. No, we'll, <laughs> we'll be there soon. Father, thank you for all who've come today. Uh, studying your word is an exciting thing for us and We learn lessons today that help us, that we can apply to our lives. I pray that uh, we will be humble followers of yours and that in our lives, people will see Jesus. And, Father, that's our heart's desire. So be with us as we go from this place. Bring us together again next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.